0: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We're
1: going already. Yeah, right. we're going. Oh, okay, we're right. great. Uh, I'm Jason Cander from Missouri.
2: And why do we have you on this podcast? <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, because you asked and I said yes. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
2: Hey, everyone. You're listening to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. Now, early on in the 2016 election season, there were not a lot of eyes on the Missouri Senate race. The Republican incumbent, Roy Blunt, was running for a second term in what was generally a pretty comfortable red state. Not clickbait. No, no, Roy Blunt did terrible not. Terrible clickbait. Now, Blunt's opponent, Jason Kander, was an Afghanistan veteran, but a newcomer to national politics. He wasn't expected to give a well-funded establishment senator like Blunt too much of a fight. And then, in September, Kander released an ad that drew a lot of attention.
1: I'm Jason Kander, and Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns.
2: Maybe you saw it. Kander is standing in what looks like an empty warehouse, facing the camera blindfolded.
3: This could be a scene from, like, Homeland.
2: (laughs) Yes. As he starts to talk, he picks up something sitting on a table in front of him, and it quickly becomes clear that he's assembling an AR-15. Sam, you had no idea what he was assembling. You're right. Not only that, but Kander is doing it blindfolded.
1: Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. In Afghanistan, I'd volunteer to be an extra gun in a convoy of unarmored SUVs. I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of
2: these. Now, the received wisdom of American politics is that there are certain states where you just can't support gun control, at least if you want to get elected.
3: And we know that from last season in our interview with Wendy Davis, when she talked movingly about not really knowing what to say around gun
2: Available control. on iTunes. But there are some politicians who argue that gun control can be sold with the right messaging and, more importantly, the right messenger. Now, if that's the case... It's hard to imagine a better attempt than this ad.
1: I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this.
2: As November 8th approached, the race tightened and the election suddenly turned into a
0: nail-biter. Kander is one of this cycle's breakout stars. Uh, He has been a formidable challenger for Roy Blunt.
2: Today on Candidate Confessional, we sit down with the man behind the blindfold to talk about his tour in Afghanistan his career in Missouri state politics, and what it's like to suddenly find yourself one of the Democratic Party's breakout stars in a year like 2016.
1: So I was living here in D.C. when 9-11 happened. I was going to American University. And up until that moment i had always sort of looked at uh, the the idea of serving in the military as something that i wanted to do and i admired a lot but i don't know for sure that i ever would have done it for sure it was sort of in this category in my mind of you know maybe one day i will do that and uh, and so i don't know what i would have done but then when 911 happened i just sort of flipped the equation and decided i was going to do that and i would work the rest of my life out around that how did i end up uh, running for office i was thinking about it a little bit already it was something that was kind of, that was interesting to me i had you know, I grew up really comfortable. So I grew up uh, without, you know, I don't, a lot of people have sort of that origin story of they were a kid and and government decisions were made and it affected their family in a certain way. And that's a really important perspective. It's not my perspective. Like, there was nobody could make a decision that would take food off our table. And then when I was in Afghanistan, it was the first time I was really ever on the receiving end of decisions made by Politicians that were very political in nature but had a real effect on myself and the people I was with.
3: Was there a moment in Afghanistan where that really hit home for you, like a story that you can tell us?
1: Yeah, there's, there's lots of little things that build yeah. up, right? So um, I can remember at times when uh, I would be with, with soldiers and we would all have decided we were going to um, sit on our helmets because we knew there was no armor underneath the vehicle. And, you know, I spent um, – about four days a week or so going outside the wire and i i can count maybe on one hand so maybe it was six seven times i was in a vehicle that was armored uh so at most and and so which i know would be two hands by the yeah, way i want to say make same. that clear i want to say but maybe <laughs> maybe it was six or seven i don't how many fingers leave, do you have i don't want to leave anyone mm-hmm. with the impression that i think that's five. So, <laughs> this anyway. is like Jeff Sessions right now. <laughs> yeah. No, no. No. But I backed up and fixed it. All right. So you know, and then other uh, one thing I do remember pretty vividly is um, I was doing a mission uh, to eastern Afghanistan to Jalalabad, and uh, and it's a it's a really dangerous route um, to go through um, that to go through Jabad Pass, and you know you could read lots of there, there's articles that have been written about that being one of the most dangerous road trips in the world with or without the enemy. And, uh, and I remember a couple of days before that, the mission was planned for helicopters. We were going to fly there, which is obviously a lot safer. And, uh, and then we didn't have helicopters. We ended up driving. And, uh, and I I remember just having a conversation with um, somebody in the chain of command. I don't remember exactly who now, but I remember, I remember being told, um, that, we were supposed to have helicopters, but a lot of those resources have been moved to Iraq. Now, I don't know if it was the same unit or whatever, but that was the general explanation I was given. And I just remember thinking, wow, that that's a very political decision to have invaded Iraq. That's definitely affected my life very directly right now.
2: What was your first impression of American government when you came back and how were you not repulsed by it?
1: You know, I don't remember thinking about it in terms of like an impression of, of American government. What I remember was a few nights after I, I had come home, uh, I was out with my wife and we're from Kansas City. So I was out in Kansas City with some friends. And I, and I remember talking to somebody and this was remember, early 07. And, and I remember somebody saying, well, at least you weren't in Iraq. And then they asked me, they said, is anything, are we, is anything happening in Afghanistan anymore? I just had this feeling of, wow, here, folks back home don't really know. And, and it's not their fault. And it all sort of at that moment came together for me, and, it, and it, it bothered me a lot but that's a
2: the whole issue of Iraq and Afghanistan is you know that's a federal issue right like, sure
1: sure, sure. But you got yeah.
2: in jail, you went into state yeah. government
1: so I would say the first thing about why, that, why don't
2: you explain to the listener yeah. sort of your path?
1: Uh, yeah let me first answer your sure. question then I will sure. so the first thing that happened at the state level that really struck me as as very similar to that political decision making process without regard to how it affects people on the ground was at the time my state had had really recently made big deep cuts in medicaid and it and it was it was a governor that was sort of taking a lot of credit for budget cutting while while hurting people and that looked real similar to me at the time to the same sort of calculus that, yeah. that, um, that got us into Iraq. Now, I'm not saying it's the exact same thing, but to me at the time, it was similar. So uh, there was an open seat for the state legislature in Kansas City. We have term limits there. And so I decided to run. Uh, and, and I had already been thinking about running for that seat before I left, but that it, it all really solidified for me. And, um, and so uh, so I did. So I ran in a, in a three-way Democratic primary uh, in in 2008. I started – I think I knocked on my first door at the beginning of August in 07, and and everybody was sort of like, you know, nice young man, probably going to come in a distant third, uh, and I went out and knocked on 20,000 doors personally and, and won a three-way primary with uh, 68% of the vote, and and – yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. It's it's still, I think, to this day, it's my favorite campaign. I did it with with my wife and my family. My mom always says that she uh, she donated two good knees to that campaign. <laughs> because we all knocked on doors together, and it was it was a blast.
2: By thirty three, you have decided you're going to run for U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thirty four. Like. That's young. Did, did, I mean, it kind of – I'm just I, – I don't know. I was
1: about to say, I mean, you look really young.
2: Yeah, so. Well, you know. I, it's it's the, you know, the moisturizer I use. Um, is there like a little bit of arrogance you think in saying at 33 that I can be a U.S. senator?
1: Oh, I suppose there's some arrogance in anybody who decides out of six million people. They're the ones who <laughs> should – you know, six million Missourians. I'd, and you're I'd, like, like, I'm well, the one. I, I don't care what age you are. If yeah. you decide out of six million people, I'm, it's it should be me. Then you – yeah, I mean, so there's why, some arrogance in that at all it times, then? right? Mean, you,
2: must have, you must have realized that people were going to say, wow, you're way too young. I mean, what, what, were you just a guy in a hurry or was this something well, that- maybe you
1: grow a beard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Look, keep in mind, this is the oldest I've ever been. So as a result- As will always be. Yeah. As, as a result, uh, I've I've never really been in a race where people didn't think, boy, you're awfully young to run for that. Yeah. And frankly, uh, most of the jobs I've had, it's been similar. Yeah. Uh, so that really wasn't a factor for me. For me, I guess I never really thought about that because after the experience of being in Afghanistan, and even if I had never deployed, just the experience of leading American soldiers and, and going through officer training, there's never been a day in politics that uh, was harder than like a Tuesday in the Army, right? Yeah. So so I just never thought about it that way. I just, I just thought, you know, I felt like there was really a need for a couple of things. I felt like there was a need for a new generation of leadership generally, and that, that made me want, want to do it. And the other part was sort of part of what I was just saying. I really feel like one of the problems we have in our politics is that there aren't enough people in elected office for whom uh, that campaign that got them there is, is not the hardest thing they've ever done. And then it just really for me, it was it was watching even before even if you can set your mind for a moment to a pre-Trump political time, which is hard to do.
2: What? We did
3: reading the old stories. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Everyone was so much more innocent. It was like
3: an (laughs) optimist. Yeah. yeah. And it was morning in America.
1: (laughs) And, and, and it was sort of like, I just had this feeling that our politics was getting to a point where the gridlock was becoming a gridlock culturally in our dialogue and now it's clearly there right yeah. like sort of this feeling not not only that congress can't work to, together but that we as americans were losing the ability to talk to each other in, in an honest dialogue as a country and and that just was gnawing at me and and some people approached me about running and and i started to think about it and over a period of a couple of months i thought about it and then um pulled the trigger and well to,
3: to, did anybody say no like your wife or somebody like hey you got this good job you win re-election and maybe later
1: I'm trying to think. No, I don't think so. Yeah. It was my wife and I are, are, are a team, and uh, and that, we've been together since we were 17. We've sort of grown up together, and the the marks against it were, and, and this is what she and I talked about. The marks against it were, um, we had a. I mean, my son's three and a half now, so he was really young, and and she she has a pretty active, a very active career that I'm really really proud of her for. And it was going to put a lot on her, and it, and it did put a lot on her. But ultimately, she felt the same way I did, and she thought it was important to do it.
2: What about um a bit of a sensitive topic, but you, your religion? You're Jewish. Mm-hmm. I can. I think we're all Jewish here. Uh, so feel free to make <laughs> well, some that, jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, the only joke <laughs> I'd
1: make is you just – like verified every conspiracy people yeah, believe about, about the about, media about, of course yeah so. well
2: here to here to do that <laughs> but it was a serious issue in your state i mean the not all
1: people by the way but <laughs> I mean, go ahead uh,
2: the republican candidate for governor mm-hmm. uh in missouri committed suicide not because he was jewish but because of what appeared to be fears that there was going to be rumors that he was jewish A whisper campaign a whisper campaign did that did that When that happened, did that affect you in a way that maybe a non-Jew might not have been affected? And did your religion come up in your calculus as one of those things that might be a hurdle?
1: Well, first, let me say a couple of things uh, to defend my state. Sure. (laughs) Not defend from – but you know what I mean. uh, One thing – two things. Uh, First, I'm actually the third Jew to have won statewide office in Missouri. Uh, And the fourth is actually the current governor. Um, So – and uh and so as, as far as Tom Schweik's suicide uh, he was he was in a primary so he he was one of the candidates for governor on the republican side and i don't know that it affected me differently as a jew but it Tom and i were friends and so mostly i was just i was just upset because um, he and i had become friends we were different sides of the aisle but we had become friends uh, and so in terms of your question about the possibility of anti-semitism and that kind of thing i've always kind of felt like Anybody who was not going to vote for me because I'm Jewish that was probably about their fifteenth reason on the list they wouldn't vote for me right mm-hmm. um so i'm a I'm a progressive guy who who you know was from Kansas City and you know so the, i mean I, I could go through the list but sure. so i don't so it was i don't think it was ever an issue in fact you know I've got some great stories about it i mean uh I can remember this is kind of a funny story so, <laughs> so I can remember um during during my Secretary of State's race, uh, I was down in southeast Missouri in, in what we call the Boot heel uh, and and uh, and I was staying with a with a good friend, and his father in law uh, was also staying over that night. And his father in law was like a like a lay minister in, in their church, and and his and his father in law sort of started to tell a joke that I about halfway through identified this was probably a Jewish joke, <laughs> and, and I. And I just didn't want him to feel. And see, know,
2: like, Jews can identify jokes pretty quickly <laughs> because we're Jewish. Yes.
1: And, uh, well, there's that radar certainly. And and so I was. I, I didn't want him to feel uncomfortable. So I kind of jumped in and said and, and told him, uh, you know, I I don't want you to be embarrassed or anything. I just I just I'm probably not going to be offended. But just so you know, I'm I'm Jewish. <laughs> And so the, this this fellow is like, oh, okay. So he tells. Actually, his first he was like, yeah, right. And uh, and, and my buddy says to his father in law, he's like, no, no, really, he, he he's Jewish. So he's like, ah, oh, it's fine. So he tells the joke, and it wasn't bad. It was pretty mild. And, and so then, it, but it was a little awkward after. So, and the next morning, this was a Saturday night. And the next morning I was going to go to church with a friend in a nearby town uh, to meet people, which you often do on the campaign trail. And, and to just sort of make it less awkward, I asked him, um, I said, well, you know, I'm going to church in Caruthersville tomorrow. I said, and probably a lot of people ask me where I go to church and I go to, to new Reformed temple in Kansas city. I said, so what should I say? I mean, I knew how, <laughs> and, and in reality, I knew how I would handle the situation, but I, I was trying to make him feel better and and he said he thought about it for a second and he said well you know as long as you're christian really don't matter <laughs> and, uh, and it, then it got real awkward and my buddy my buddy turns to him and it's like he's not he's jewish
0: <laughs> and he
1: and he thinks about it again for a second and goes just another kind of Christian. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe you're right. And so and, and then there's lots of other little fun stories from from the trail, but I, I really don't think it was ever an issue. I, I think folks folks it's like anything else. They want to know that you're genuine, sure. That you you believe in in what you're saying, whether it's about your faith or about policy. So all right, so you
2: jump into the race. Let's get let's get into sure. the juice here. You jump into the race. And, you know, you're described in all types of adoring terms.
3: <laughs> Kennedy
2: S. You have the bio. You have the look. Um, what What is the moment? A Jewish Kennedy. A Jewish Kennedy. The first, yeah. Very Jewish Kennedy. What's the moment where you thought to yourself, what the fuck Why have I gotten it? into? Why did I do this? Because everyone has those moments. So don't don't sit here and be like, you know, it was a breeze. Why did I it do was this?
1: A uh, you know, I, there was never a moment where it was like, "Gosh, this is so hard. No, Why did no. I do this?" But, but there were certainly. But maybe this is so trivial. Or this is so dumb. Why <laughs> like, I'm getting sure, attacked there, for this? Not, I, there wasn't. I mean, I was attacked for dumb stuff. Don't get me wrong. But, but I, I guess I just never felt like I was better than getting attacked for dumb stuff. But better than that. But um, because everybody does in politics. But there were definitely moments where I mean, when you run when you run for U.S. Senate in a very competitive race, it is. Unfortunately, and this is a big problem with our campaign finance system. It is really a national race, right? Like, you end up having to travel all over the country to raise money. And I swear, like, there were times when I would be doing that, and I'd be pulling my little uh, ro- rolling bag that's sitting right over there, right? And and you know, there were times when you just felt ridiculous. I mean, just not like not like you're better than this. Just just more like this system. Is were you so shocked? Broken.
2: Were you shocked by how much time you had to spend fundraising?
1: I wasn't shocked by it. I was just... Beaten by it. <laughs> no, I was like... It was more like... Um, so the other context to this is a lot of my time in Missouri politics has been focused on campaign reform and ethics reform. And, and my job in Afghanistan as an, as an intelligence officer, I did anti-corruption investigations. So like this is a common thread throughout my time in, in public service that this has always really bothered me. Like I'm a guy who... I tend to talk a lot, like now I'm doing Let America Vote, I tend to think and talk a lot about how the systems work, because I'm a really big believer in when you can create a system that is really merit-based, you're going to get better outcomes. So I I feel that really deeply. So then when you are in your 10th meeting in a day, and they're all 30 minutes, and they're like speed dating fundraising meetings, and you're in you're somewhere a long way from, I mean, I, I spent so much time on planes and stuff. Yeah. You just, you're, you don't feel personally ridiculous, but there is an element of, I, I can remember a few times like starting fundraising meetings in a way that would really upset my staff. Like if it were the end of a long day and, and they, and you need to sit down and, and, and this, this good person who's taken their time to sit down with you, you know, ask some very innocent opening question, like, so how are you doing? <laughs> right. And, and I would, I would just say, honestly don't you think this system is absurd like (laughs) and 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 i would i would sit there and i'd be like you know just like you seem like a great person i'm really looking forward to our conversation i'd say but don't you think just the fact that i'm here is just such an indictment of this system and the funny thing was is most of the time that would actually end up being like a really unique way to and then we'd have like a really interesting conversation about it
2: and they write you a check
1: yeah i mean yeah i mean (laughs) usually
2: and but they appreciated the honesty After the break, the Missouri Senate race heats up and the attack ads fly.
0: Planning for your next trip?
2: When we left off, Jason Kander was courting Democratic donors to try and get his campaign off the ground. Meanwhile, Republicans were doing exactly the same thing. Part of the problem was you had money thrown at you by Karl Rove's group, like almost what, like not instantaneously, but fairly early on in the race. And you, I mean, the race became nationalized by outside forces. Were you were you surprised a little bit by because at the time, you know, you're you're young, Blunt's got incumbency. It's Missouri. I don't think anyone initially expected it to be that tight a race, but clearly we national did. Republicans were nervous. Right.
1: Uh, it, it was – the race was I, – so I got into the race February 19th, 2015. So it was however many months that is. It was like nearly sure. nearly two years, right? Give or take a few months. And um, and for most of the race, yeah, it was – that was the national sort of conventional wisdom about our race. It was a uh, you know, good candidate on paper, but – you know, it's Missouri and and it's it's Roy Blunt, so probably this this won't amount to anything. That was what ev- other people outside thought. Um, myself, my campaign manager, my wife, our team, we believed all along we were going to make this a really close race and win it. And we believed it from the very beginning. And so, you know, that first however many months, more than a year certainly, was sort of um, toiling in, in uh, with no one knowing, right? Like we were doing all this work. And, and a lot of those meetings I would take either – you know, in Missouri or mostly the ones around the country were just sort of providing this like case for why this can be a race, you know. And and I ended up getting a lot of support and it worked out. And so what's funny now is it's like what people remember about the race is that last three or four months where the whole – where we got a lot of attention yeah. and, and a lot of the country was sort of watching or the the political nerds around the country like us were watching the race. But know? how did your perceptions of
3: the race change when you saw that uh, that Trump was – was sort of rising in the polls and was sort of was going to win the nomination.
1: I guess my perception changed in the sense that the same way everybody's perception around the country changed of like what is happening, sort of thing. But for us, it was interesting because I had been running not on a Trump message, but I had been you know I w- I was an outsider to, to Washington politics, right? Still am. I still live in Kansas City, so it, it it was interesting because people reporters would consistently ask like uh, how. At first, it was the conventional wisdom somehow, I don't know how it became like, oh, Trump really hurts candor, right? Like that was it, which ultimately turned out to be true, I guess, because he won Missouri by 19. So that was the original conventional wisdom. And then it was, oh, but Trump's message, then it was like candor is now this, has this outsider message because he's copying off of Trump. And I was like, you know, I got in this race in February of 15. I've been saying the same thing since day one. And he got in in like June of 15, not that I had anything to do with it. But so it was interesting because, Really, it it sort of, um, I think, buttressed a lot of our message about we need change. It's just that we had two completely different versions of change.
2: I think there's – I I had thought of it differently, I have to say. Trump was always perceived as the weakest Republican in the Mm, field. Right. And if he was at the top of the ticket, the Republican Party writ large would do worse. Mm -hmm. And so maybe when he won the nomination, people started to perceive your chances
1: better. That's true. That that did happen as well. People –
2: and this is where I, I think there's some tension. I think tension people is perceived that, of everyone's chances yeah. is better. Yeah. But this is where the tension that you're talking about comes in, which is he was bringing in a lot of these people who maybe were sort of politically lethargic, or you know, mm-hmm. new, or even you know, some Democrats who f- were tired of the party, and that caught the Clinton campaign off guard badly, obviously. I'm wondering as you were walking around campaigning in Missouri, if you began to notice what ultimately surprised a lot of people in the end.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that's why, you know, we lost by less than three and, and, um, Hillary lost our state by 19. And I think the difference is, is that it, for as much of that, like what I was talking about earlier, for much as that national travel was, I had to do, I mean, I knew my state really well and I also was getting around my state a lot. And, uh, and I went to every county, and I talked to I talked to people, and uh, there was a, a big part of why I ran ended up being you know a big theme in the campaign, not just for me but across the country, which was just people having this overwhelming feeling of this isn't working.
0: And poll after poll, it is clear that the American people are fed up with Washington. Voter dissatisfaction is through the roof.
1: I can't in any way sit here and tell you that I saw a Trump victory coming, but I definitely understood. Um, the frustration that people had. I just wouldn't have communicated it by voting for Trump.
0: So this is an anti-establishment year, no doubt. Trump on the GOP side, Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side.
1: There is a dissatisfaction with both
3: established parties in a way that I've certainly not seen in my lifetime.
2: Both Cander and his opponent, Roy Blunt, tried to tap into this kind of anti-establishment sentiment, attacking each other for ties to lobbyists in Washington. Now, obviously, this line of attack worked a little bit more naturally for Candor, given that he was running against the incumbent.
3: Senator Blunt voted to raise his own pay 12 times. He lives in a $1.6 million D.C. mansion.
2: But Blunt used essentially the same attack line against Cander, calling him out for ties to lobbyists.
0: Jason Cander's taken millions from lobbyists and special interests. Even Cander's wife was listed as a lobbyist, but now Jason Cander lies about that too. Jason Cander, another lying liberal politician.
2: Behind the bluster of these ads, though, Kander really did face a trickier electoral path, one that's tripped up other Missouri Democrats.
3: I mean, people studying Missouri politics talk about the real issue for any politician running statewide is the urban-rural divide. And mm-hmm. how early on was that on your radar, to sort of proving your bona fides in sort of the rural communities?
1: Well, you got to remember that I had already won a statewide race in Missouri, right? So, um, and I had done it in 2012 when President Obama had lost the state on the same day by almost 10. And... What I've learned, it's – I'm kind of a broken record about this, but it's its true in all these different things, is that if you're just genuine in what you believe and you don't pretend to be something you're not, you got a chance at getting not every vote but nearly every person's vote. And yeah, I didn't grow up on a farm, right? But I spent a lot of time as secretary of state or – you know, I, I wanted to make sure I understood very much the experience and these are my constituents, right? When people know that you're not trying to pretend that you fit in perfect – they, then you fit in. Sure. Like, that's the interesting thing about it, right? They're You're like,
2: talking about authenticity, basically.
1: Yeah, like I've joked before that uh, the highest compliment you can get as a politician seems to be you seem comfortable in your own skin, which is hilarious because you've never heard anybody say, you know what I like about my accountant? Just really comfortable <laughs> in his own skin. <laughs> like it's this very low bar for, yeah, you for politicians. You haven't my
2: accountant. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> So my, real quick, though, sure. my point is that then I, I, I would go to every community in the state, no matter where it was, and say, well, here's what I believe. But here's the second part that's really important. And here's why I think it matters for you.
2: In addition to the rural-urban divide, the issues of of gun culture seem Mm -hmm. to permeate a lot of this. And, you know, Well, I guess I should just open the floor and ask you to explain sort of the conception of the now famous ad. In the
1: state legislature, I supported Second Amendment rights. I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. The other side was hitting me. I had an F rating from the NRA, and and so they were hitting me for this. And and I remember uh, I just sort of said offhand to my campaign manager and and the media guy, I was like, well, I'm sure I can put a rifle together a lot faster than the other guy. And... uh, (laughs) And, and they, and then at some point somebody was like, well, can you do it blindfolded? And I said, well, you know, I've done it in the dark a lot. It's muscle memory probably. And then, and then we kind of went from there. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this.
2: Wait, so you had never done it blindfolded?
1: No, I don't think so. Okay. I I don't think so. Um, I really – I don't remember ever doing okay, a blindfolded. Right. Um, but, you know, when you're –
2: We just broke some serious news here, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you, but when you
1: have to like – but you ba- I basically had, right? Because yeah. when you have to clean your weapon in the woods and it's pitch dark out, like, it's the same thing. Sure. Right? And so that's what I meant. Like, I've – yeah, yeah. So I've basically done that a lot. Um, uh, so anyway, so that's how it came about. Uh, I guess that answers your question. I, that's the shortest answer I've given this time. So wait, how many, how many uh, takes – uh, I got it on the first take. I don't know which take they used, um, okay? Because you know they do different stuff with lighting and all that.
2: So that's it. You were just like, you know, what I can d- put a rifle together and like, quicker. Cool.
1: Well, and then I guess the rest of the story is that. Um,
2: Man, I was hoping for something a little bit more dramatic. Well, then
1: they, you know, then I think the first draft of the script was like something that some, I don't know who wrote was something about just the Second Amendment stuff, and I and I remember saying, well, you know, if we're gonna do this, like. I want to make an argument for gun safety. I, sure. I, you know, I said, let's make it about background checks. I'm not going to, because that's the other thing, would just be pandering and it wouldn't be honest. Sure. You know? so, so, that's, so I'm really proud of the way we did it. To me, that ad was, yeah, I'm for background checks, and I know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. Right? That That's what that ad is to me. The single most talked about ad of the entire year. Could
0: that ad decide control the Senate? It's put veteran and Democrat Jason Kander into a dead heat with Roy Blunt in Missouri. Missouri, usually a pretty reliable red state. Is this, is this uh, what's going on here? The
2: ad got so much attention that the Blunt campaign decided they had to put out their own ad specifically
0: responding to it. Some people can put together a gun blindfolded. Some do it really fast.
2: It opens with a montage of YouTube videos of blindfolded people assembling guns really fast. The insinuation being that this is some kind of bizarre, nerdy, niche hobby, and that Candor is a weirdo for doing it.
0: Some do it upside down and blindfolded.
2: But there was no getting around the immediacy and visual impact of the original ad. The conventional wisdom was that this race was now a toss up. The ad comes out, you're closing the gap. It's a 50 50 race, it seems like, towards the end of the campaign. Was there a point uh, where you knew you were going to lose, though? You did ultimately lose. No, no point. I mean, well,
1: about five minutes before I uh, called Roy Blunt and conceded. Uh, So you thought till the end you had a chance. Uh, Yeah. Well, look, um, the polling for us was all really good. Uh, You got to remember that, you know, from in my lifetime in the sense of when I'd been really, you know, old enough to pay attention to politics, like – the, the worst anybody had lost during that period of time in Missouri, a Democrat, the worst they'd lost, uh, in terms of a presidential candidate was president Obama in 2012 mm-hmm. was, was almost 10 points. That was a huge, huge landslide, right. Yeah. From our perspective. So the idea of the top of the ticket losing by 19 just never occurred to any of us. And sure. I don't think it occurred to the Republicans either. So, um, uh, and our last polls had us ahead. I, from what I hear, the Republicans' polls were pretty similar. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I was pretty – I was very confident all the way through election night. I mean, heck, the early absentee numbers uh, that we got back were all better than the early absentee numbers I got back in 2012, a race that I won statewide.
2: So five minutes before – jeez. You, had you even prepared a concession speech? No. Uh,
1: no. My concession speech, uh, I made it up in my head as I was walking onto the stage to uh, to give it.
2: So when it came in, it must when, when you finally settled in that you had lost, it, not only devastation, and the, I know there's more important things, but sadness that you'd lost, but utter shock, too.
1: Yeah, but um, by that point, you know, it was kind of late in the night. And, yeah, why don't you
2: just walk us through that night? Why don't we sure. tell the story of that night? Sure. You're um, in the war room.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we had, it was actually, I know this sounds really crazy to say, most of the night was really fun. Uh, that's crazy and not because (laughs) not because not not just because I thought I was going to win but because you know I had my families there my you know I knew it was the campaign was over I knew that whatever happened tomorrow I was going to I was going to spend it with my wife and my son and you know it's funny like in 2012, uh, we had a very close race that we won, and there was a point at, on election night in 2012 where I'm sitting there and we're watching the returns. And the way it usually happens in Missouri is just the, the city returns come in last, and so you're behind by, for a while. And that's what happened in 2012, and then we ended up pulling ahead at like 1 in the morning. Well, at like 10 p.m., I wasn't distraught or anything, but I said to my campaign manager, I was like – I think I just want to call and concede. And I remember him getting really mad at me. He's like, there's so much left to have happen. <laughs> and it wasn't that I was giving up. It was just that, like, I'm a person who I just, you know, we have an expression in the Army, is drive on. Like, sure. I just, whatever whatever happened, win or lose, like, what? Do, what's the next thing? I'm, I want to move on to the next thing now. And there, so that's sort of how I am. Is there
2: something that you look back? I mean, you made it super close, right, three, three percentage points uh, in, a, in a race where mm-hmm. Hillary lost by 19 in your state. But is there something where you look back? And you say, "I wish I had done that differently. That might have made it closer."
1: You know, I'm going to make your podcast really boring. And I apologize, but you no, per-
2: you ran the perfect campaign.
1: I can't think of anything I would do differently, and and I've had the I've had the good fortune of really not having anything that's caused me to think about it. I, I just, again, I'm kind of a person who just I just kind of keep going. Sure. Like that's and and a lot of that is I think the army, but but the other thing is I've thought about it there's nothing i would do differently uh not only is there nothing i would do differently because of my principles and my convictions but i can't think of anything that even if i were a person who were willing to compromise those why it would have made a difference because my fundamental belief is you go out and you tell the truth about what you believe and people like that all right well then
2: i guess the natural follow-up to that is are you i mean because you did run a really great race and there's not anything you would have done differently and you still came up just short like do you think people like you who are sort of unapologetically, you know, progressive and, you know, authentic are you imprisoned at all by the politics of your state? I mean, people look at you like they're the you're the future, but you also are in a state where there aren't may, maybe that many opportunities for people like you. Um I
1: don't know. I don't think about I guess I don't think about it that way because for me, uh I, like each office that I've run for it's been because there was a thing I wanted to do, a cha- like something I wanted to do, like a change I wanted to make. And there happened to be an office between me and doing that. So, uh, you know, I don't think of it as I'm not dying to run for office, right? Like like right now I'm doing Let America Vote because to me that's really important and and that's what I want to do. So to me it's no different than if I occupy an office by being president of Let America Vote because that's the most important thing I can be doing right now. Uh, so I guess I just haven't thought
2: about it that way. Yeah, but other people have thought about it for you, right? Oh, well,
1: that's very nice of them. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't even remember the question. What's the question? Is, <laughs> is Missouri
2: – is, 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 are people who are unapologetically progressive, which I think you described yourself as, are they imprisoned, not in the literal sense, but are they hampered by being in states like Missouri? Can someone like you win in a state that has clearly moved –
1: yeah, um, I mean, I've I've won yeah. there statewide before, and I think I think everybody pretty well agrees that had we not had sort of this anomaly that we've had, that I would have won. So, let me explain what I think is going on with that issue in in Please. states like yeah. mine. So, I think a lot of people who are not from places like where where I'm from look at that. And One of the things that people ask me all the time is they'll say, "How can people who you know?" who don't have who aren't you know rich how, how can they have guns be their number one issue right people ask me that all the time and and, and the thing is is you know w- what i've learned talking to folks in my state and remember also like you know i grew up like my dad had guns my i mean the the rifle in the in the in the ad is my brother's right i mean so it's not like i grew up apart from this um and so what it really is is I got around the state and talked to people, the people who would bring that up and, and, and say that's the number one issue, particularly in, in, in poorer parts of the state. What I realized after a period of time is that that is not a reflection necessarily of them thinking that that the Second Amendment is truly the only, the thing they care about more than anything else. It is, it is more a recognition of their conclusion that they've reached – that politics is not working. And so the promises that people make about raising the minimum wage, about tackling student loans, about doing these things that really could help their family. It's not that they don't know. They know that would help their family. They know that they are in favor of that. But a lot of them have made the, have looked at it and said, I don't think you're going to get that done. And I think, I think it's all talk and I don't think it's I don't think it's working. And I think that they don't trust politicians. And so then once, if you, if you believe that, like if, if you've reached that conclusion and you have a tradition in your family that you always went hunting with your grandfather and your dad, and you want to do that with your son and your grandson or your daughter and, and granddaughter, uh, well then it, it starts to feel, uh, like a more rational, um, Conclusion: You can see the math, and, and then when people say, "Well, I don't believe you're going to do any of that stuff," so just don't mess with this thing that I care about, right? Now I'm not endorsing that, but I'm saying that is a lot different than thinking people just care more about guns than they do their sure. income.
3: Were you were you worried about how the ad would come across? That like there would be some sort of negative reaction to it in some ways?
1: Uh, if anything, I, I thought that if there would be, it would be maybe from folks um, who were outside missouri who who would who would really i was worried maybe i would be misunderstood and i, I was frankly pretty relieved when i wasn't you know I misunderstood was, in what way um you know because other people who didn't grow up with their dad having guns and that you know oh, you my, my people look guy, were
2: looking at you and say you're glorifying yeah all, i was you know, a little, I, I was i was
1: we definitely when we when we when we released it we were like We'll see. We'll see how we knew how it would be received in our state, but it was like we'll see what people think. Um, we, we were just saying, I really hope people see what we're trying to say. Trying to say here.
3: Why didn't you uh, fry bacon on your gun the (laughs) way Tim Cruz?
1: Because I've (laughs) never heard of anyone doing that until then. (laughs) Until that that moment.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's interesting because we've had people on here who have admitted to, to messing up the gun issue. Mm. Uh, we had Wendy Davis on, and she had issues with that, mm-hmm. and, and didn't, and she ended up saying things that she did not believe, yeah. and and regretted it. You seemed to have taken that opportunity to, you know, uh, have a good uh, ad that was memorable, but say something behind it that you believed in firmly, that you were comfortable saying. Is mm-hmm. it just that politicians are so used to like um, having everything sort of consultant? and sort of policy, you know, focus group driven that they're not going to be – they're never that comfortable and this was something – that kind of came from a place uh, uh, where you were comfortable with it.
1: For me, I think it, it all goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about just sort of having done something much harder than run for office, right? In the sense that uh, I know that for me, I'm never going to do something where i am I'm just like, well – that's not who I am, but I did it anyway, right? That's just not, it's not why I do this. And so it was easy easy for me to, so I I guess the ad is just one example of that.
2: That was former Missouri Senate candidate Jason Kander. Candidate confessionals produced and edited by Zach Young, who also wrote our theme music... Now, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and spread the word to complete strangers and everyone that you know in your family. Email them, text them, G-chat them, whatever you use. Next week on our show, we have former Congressman Barney Frank, who's going to discuss the passage and the eventual repeal of the military's don't ask, don't tell policy. See you then.
1: Of course, in Texas, we cook bacon a little differently than most folks.